0: Welcome to another Innovation Forum podcast with me, Ian Welsh. Joining me today is Alan Kroger, who's the head of supply chains and natural climate solutions at Satelligence. Welcome to the podcast, Alan. Thank you for having me. Everyone seems to be thinking about how they can get to net zero on very ambitious timeframes. For forest commodities and forest commodity supply chains, what do you think are the main decarbonising challenges?
1: seems the one of the first main issues is companies determining their role and their level of responsibility. In this space, you have growers and traders and FMCGs, and they all see their role in the net zero world differently. And they're struggling on how to get involved in mitigation, what role they should play. Are they the finance? Are they the project developers? Are they just the customer of, of net zero products uh, in some cases? So in general, they need to have better guidance on how to act together across any of the commodities, especially in palm and cocoa is what I've been working with a lot recently. You also have the same companies that are at different stages of their net zero journeys. And so they're not ready to act together, even if they wanted to. So some have science-based targets and have a plan. Others committed to developing SBT, but they have no clear roadmap yet. And they don't have the data, the full supply chain information to actually get started. And so they they don't have the full picture to take that type of holistic climate action.
0: Is there a danger then, do you think, to trying to start too quickly? Everyone's talking about the pace of change that's necessary. But is there sometimes an element of caution that you know, just make sure you get everything lined up before you really go for it?
1: I don't think so. I think actually many companies should be praised for sort of taking the leap in making a commitment without having a full-fledged plan because it sort of spurs all the other stakeholders in this space to jump to action at the same time to help them sort of catch up because all these companies can catch up as quickly as they desire to.
0: What examples can you point to that demonstrate really good progress in decarbonizing?
1: All these good progress for these companies starts with good data, and that is both spatially and temporally specific data. We've worked with a number of companies on establishing more accurate baselines for deforestation and carbon emissions on their farms and their sourcing landscapes. And others have worked with us to identify such as in cocoa where their full sun and where their shade cocoa farms are and coffee farms are and this is one of the first critical steps i think towards making a strategic plan as others have already done especially in the cocoa space on where to best utilize natural carbon capture uh, via sort of the, the nature-based solutions portfolio of actions as part of their net zero strategy for their supply chain I think Palm is kind of making the most progress in this space because it's also where an example of what I think a model going forward is the, the RIMBA collective run by our friends at Lestari Capital. They're the model for pooling resources from companies in the palm oil industry and then with plans to expand to the other commodities uh, to create these nature positive supply chain outcomes is the best it's sort of taking the jurisdictional red approach that governments and multilaterals have been working on and taking it to the commodity supply chain strategy space for climate, which I think could be quite
0: fruitful. Do you think palm oil is further down the line because it's it's been subject to most pressure?
1: That's probably true with RSPO and with the pressure since, since the mid-2000s. And then just with both the lack of action and the sort of increased action from the government, depending on which decade you're looking at, you have more maturity in the local government and the national government working with industry to take these steps.
0: Let's talk a bit about cooperation then. What do you think that effective cooperation between government growers and buyers and all the other supply chain players looks like?
1: For me and a lot of the collective action that I've worked on, the most effective cooperation begins with the open dialogue of all those parties and the inclusion of key stakeholders. I think a lot of people get swamped in bringing in too many stakeholders, but as long as you can identify the key parties, you can then have alignment on clear intent uh, for shared goals and plans. When you look at governments, essentially all governments have an NDC uh, via the Paris Agreement, and these include their LULUCF, their land use emission reduction targets. And I would say, in almost all cases, they need the private sector via growers and traders. And in some cases, the smallholders they source from to do the heavy lifting to actually create those emission reductions for their public commitments. And at the same time, you have growers, traders, farmers, that need the government for regulatory certainty. They need clear and long-lasting policies, incentives, disincentives in some cases to to base their plans and commitments on. And so many of these companies will set a target with little of the work actually done on how they will achieve it. And I think, as I said previously, that's something to be praised because they're pushed by consultants to do so, but then they need to be rewarded with the cooperation from governments and multilaterals with the blended finance vehicles that are always being talked about. And lastly, I think a key tool available to facilitate the cooperation between these parties are these monitoring platforms, many of which intelligence is involved in that leverage the immense amounts of of data that these groups have, especially the the private sector. But that data needs to be organized and it needs to be put in context in these sourcing landscapes that can actually be used to make these strategic landscape level decisions and decisions on where to pool and focus human and financial capital on reforestation and agroforestry and other restoration I think are made a lot more clear for decisive action when you use remote sensing combined with supply chain data because that essentially serves as the basis for an implementation plan uh, for each of these uh, commodity collaborative efforts.
0: You mentioned uh, monitoring platforms just now. What characterizes what a good platform or tool to help in this regard? What characterizes a good one?
1: I think a good one is one that mixes both granularity without over-promising on what it can deliver. If you use a monitoring platform at the proper jurisdictional level, where you have the level of granularity that allows for corporates to make actual sourcing decisions, as opposed to a platform that's more global in nature that just helps to create awareness, let's say, across an industry or across stakeholder groups. It spurs an interest in action, but it doesn't provide the level of detail necessary to actually take on the ground action. A monitoring platform that offers you the information at the level to make actual decisions at farm and concession level is what's necessary.
0: There's also been a lot of talk about nature-based solutions and even moving into natural carbon capture. How do you think these should develop to be most effective?
1: So I think to be most effective, they basically need to be as inclusive of communities as possible in terms of gathering input on what mitigation activities are included in that particular project area. then also how the economic benefits are distributed with NCS and NBS, they should really take full advantage of the technology that's available to them through reducing MRV costs, especially essentially democratizing access to, to carbon finance such as like the work that we at intelligence are doing is to we're perfecting our methods to measure carbon sequestration at the landscape and all the way down to the smaller farm level. And so with that type of technological advances, it enables the carbon benefits of small farmers and landowners to actually be accounted for and crucially to actually be paid for by whichever actor is using those carbon credits. In terms of a mechanism in the voluntary carbon market, what many I've been seeing people talking about it now is just the verified carbon market, because there's nothing voluntary about climate action is that it's a necessity and it's really the market mechanism that will scale this work when it's put in a combined effort with the global carbon market mechanism that should hopefully be coming out of COP26.
0: What is it you're specifically looking for from COP26? You mentioned the voluntary carbon market, you referred to it as the verified carbon market, which is an interesting point. What are you looking for from COP26?
1: I think what everyone's waiting for is finalizing the Paris rulebook. It's been lagging for a number of COPs now with fundamental disagreements, but on very fundamental things which is the need for agreement on transparency and carbon accounting. That's the goal of COP26 is to finalize those aspects of the rulebook. There's other priorities around commitments to adaptation, financing and things like that, which are obviously also critical. In order to really spur climate action, we really need the rulebook to be finalized so that government-to-government cooperation can start under Article 6 and then leverage their private sector partners to do so.
0: To do all that, there still seem to me to be necessary to have ever more radical solutions. What are the radical solutions that do you think are necessary? And can they flourish within existing market structures?
1: They can certainly function within the existing market structures, even though they're radical solutions such as scaling carbon credits via remote sensing, like the initiative that was launched last year under Finite Carbon to deliver carbon payments to small forest landowners in the US. That was an incredible new development for small landowners to benefit from the carbon credits that the private sector is purchasing. In order to truly move the needle on things, you need something a little more disruptive from the government side. Governments in many locales where you could have huge mitigation benefits in in tropical countries haven't been pushing the private sector hard enough in terms of getting them to change their practices. And whether that's a combination of incentives or disincentives that are lacking, is really for those governments to decide what will work best for their relationships with the private sector. I'll probably get in trouble for pointing people to this, but the Jeffrey Sachs speech at the UN food systems pre-summit this summer was something that was quite revelatory in terms of talking about how food systems need to be upended and the way the governments need to be changing their interactions with the private sector basically to have them behave, pay their taxes, and follow the rules, so would already result in climate benefits for everyone.
0: I keep hearing from everybody It's that getting the incentives right is so important, and we're not there yet, and that's where the real radical change needs to come. Technology, of course, can provide exciting solutions. What excites you when you're advising companies about how to decarbonize their supply chains and halting deforestation and biodiversity decline? What gets you excited about all of that?
1: It's really the scalability that's possible with our technologies. Many of the companies that I've been speaking to and my passion and focus right now is in the cocoa sector with technology's ability to differentiate between the full sun and the shade cocoa systems. And then to be able to use that to then track progress across entire countries in terms of how the dissemination of shade trees to farmers is actually yielding true results in terms of increasing shade on farms and therefore increasing diversity of tree crops, food crops, and then the carbon and biodiversity benefits from scaled agroforestry, I think will be a huge boon to both the cocoa sector's climate adaptation strategy, mitigation strategy, and its ability to deliver carbon finance to those farmers as companies use these efforts as a very large carbon insetting scheme for their own net zero strategies.
0: It does feel like there are a number of radical solutions that are give the opportunity and kind of there's only now we can see how it could happen, how there would be an opportunity for businesses to get towards a net zero impact at the same time as providing incentives for farmers and growers that enable them to produce crops sustainably in the future. I mean, do you think that's right? I mean, are we actually now willing to see the real solutions emerging?
1: Certainly. Because before, with all the 2020 commitments, companies were all about, you know, they were focused on zero deforestation commodities without really having a real plan to do so and not really a real incentive to do so. It was pretty much all around licensed operate. But now with carbon being so entangled and intertwined with their deforestation commitments, there seems to be both more action spurred on and more ambition because it makes it more real for them. With carbon as an actual liability on their balance sheet and on for their public commitments and for their um, investors, that just makes it something they actually have to take real action on and invest in the solutions and the technology to make it happen.
0: Carbon is providing the incentives that we've been talking about, there's, there's where it sits. Okay, well, it'd be interesting to see where we get to, and perhaps we can pick this up again another time. But for now, Alan from Sotelligence, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much.